$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part five of the case of serial killer Robert Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Once again, I'll be referencing Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton, and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women for much of this episode. Investigative journalist slash author Stevie Cameron covered the Picton case extensively. I can't recommend enough that you pick up a copy of her book. Let's pick right back up where we left off last week. The year was 1995. Willie Picton ended up on a suspect list for the murder of three women, and although he was ruled out, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police started keeping closer tabs on Willie. And Willie's brother Dave had come up with yet another business plan. You see, Dave Picton had a job demolishing a little hole-in-the-wall country bar in Port Coquitlam, known as the Boo Pub. The Boo Pub had quite the reputation. It was known for strippers, dope dealers, and bikers. As Dave Picton was tearing the old bar apart, he had his little epiphany. He would carefully remove all the bar stools, furniture, and kitchen equipment and haul it over to a piece of property he had bought with money made from the sale of the parcels of farmland just a couple years prior. Dave had purchased a rundown two-story house on a little chunk of land right off Burns Road. Y'all remember Burns Road, right? It's where Timothy Barrett lived with his family before he was run over by Dave, rolled into a ditch, and left to die by Dave and Willie's mother, Louise. The chunk of land that the house sat on also had several shacks and sheds out in the back. The biggest of the sheds had been used by the previous owners as a stable for horses, and Dave thought that an old stable would be the perfect spot for a new bar and dance hall. Dave and his workers hauled all the horse shit out and hauled in restaurant equipment, bars, tables, and chairs, 
and Piggy's Palace Good Time Society was born. Before the doors were even open, Dave, Willie, and the many men who worked for them were bubbling with excitement. They were fixing to have unlimited access to sex, women, drugs, and alcohol, and they couldn't wait. Surprisingly, at first, it wasn't a shithole, at least not by appearance. Dave had carefully removed enough equipment to throw together a complete kitchen. He hired women to cook, and they served things like cabbage rolls and shrimp. But the barbecue pork, that was left up to Willie and a guy named Pat Casanova. There was enough seating for roughly 150 people, a sound system, and a dance floor, complete with a disco ball. Serving that many people was going to require a full staff, so Dave got down to business. As always, he was real good at bossing other people around. He hired Lisa Yelds to clean and wait tables. And let's just talk about Lisa Yelds for a minute. You see, Lisa was Willie's best friend. They had met when they were children all the way back when Willie's parents owned the meat locker because Lisa's grandparents, who had raised her, were customers of the Pictons. So they'd frequently stop by to pick up meat. On one occasion, nine-year-old Willie had gifted her a bag of hot dogs. Lisa recalled to Stevie Cameron, Willie was helping in the store, and I guess he was about nine or ten. What really struck me was his blonde hair. He was working beside a stout and stocky older lady, his mother. One day he looked at me and smiled, and then he gave me a bag of hot dogs, like a present. I wasn't used to people being nice to me. I never forgot him. Although Lisa never forgot Willie, it wouldn't be until 30 years later and a chance reunion that they would become the best of friends. One New Year's Eve night, the phone at the Picton farm rang. Willie picked it up. On the other end of the line was Lisa Yelts. She was looking for her son Rocky, who was out with his friend DJ. DJ just so happened to be Willie's nephew and Dave Picton's son. Lisa called because she was concerned. It was New Year's Eve and both boys were underage. It was getting late and she didn't want them getting into trouble. She explained all this to Willie over the phone. Willie said he would take care of it, and he did, rounding up and bringing the two boys home safely. Lisa was grateful. Lisa and Willie became fast friends. It wasn't long before the pair were talking on the phone for hours at a time, or Lisa was just dropping by the farm to help with chores. They became very close. In fact, Lisa Yelds was the only person on the face of the planet who could convince Willie Picton to hop in the bath. And she didn't generally beat around the bush when she thought he needed a good scrubbing. She'd just outright tell him that he stunk. Lisa and Willie shared a common love for true crime and cop shows. They would spend time together watching movies over at Willie's like Dirty Harry or any other police or detective movie. And Lisa's home life with her husband wasn't exactly stable. At times, she actually lived with Willie. Their relationship was never reportedly sexual, although according to Lisa, 
every now and then they would cuddle. Friends with cuddling benefits? Thunder buddies? Yeah, I don't know either. It's clear that Lisa knew Willie better than practically anyone else at the time. And he had some quirks. According to Lisa, as she spoke to Stevie Cameron, Willie was absolutely filthy and never cut his toenails, but made regular visits to the dentist and took excellent care of his teeth. His house was a pigsty, no pun intended, yet he liked a clean bathroom, clean clothes, and for Lisa to set the table for him. By the early 90s, Lisa was Willie's right-hand woman. She was with him at the slaughterhouse, auctions, he'd take her grocery shopping, he even helped her get a car. She was there for the Picton brothers' daily morning meetings, which were held in the most Picton way possible, in a strip bar owned by the Hells Angels. The meetings were more like Dave Picton telling Willie and the crew what they had to do for the day. Dave would say jump and Willie would ask how high, or so that's how it usually went. But one day in one of those early strip club breakfast meetings, Willie had enough. Sometime during the meeting, Dave Picton, who never really liked Lisa in the first place, had tried to trip her. Willie lost his shit and straight whooped Dave's ass right there in front of everybody. I mean, he'd kind of had it coming for a long time. Although Willie and Lisa seemed to be two peas in a pod, they were both keeping a secret from one another. Lisa's secret? Her BFF Willie reminded her of Ed Gein. Yeah, that one. The guy who wore people's skin. Isn't that what we're all looking for in a best friend? Lisa knew all about Ed Gein. In fact, Lisa had a vast knowledge about serial killers. She had read every book she could get her hands on written on the topic and collected an extensive library of serial killer books. She took note of the many similarities between Ed Gein and Willie Picton. Farmers. Check. Weird relationship with domineering mother, abusive father, and bully of a brother. Check, check. Yelds recalled to Cameron, quote, I always had this thought at the back of my mind that Willie could be a serial killer, but I was never afraid of him myself. I knew he would never hurt me. And Willie's secret? He was. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Back at the all-new Piggy's Palace Good Time Society, Lisa began waitressing and cleaning for Dave. And Dave paid her next to nothing. She was making $50 for working a 12-hour shift from 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. But don't get it twisted. Dave Picton could have easily afforded to pay her a livable wage because Piggy's Palace was making money hand over fist. One of Dave's doormen, Scott Chubb, which take that name and tuck it away in your cap for later. But Scott Chubb would recall that once Piggy's Palace was up and running, thousands of dollars were pouring in. On average, they were pulling at least 10 grand a night. And that was just a normal night. Big parties and events brought in thousands more. 
Chubb recalled collecting $43,000 in a single night, and that was just in entry fees. I'm clearly in the wrong business. And old Willie Picton, well, he came prepared to party. He cleaned himself up, took a bath or three, threw on some new clothes, and went down to the hair club for men. He needed something to cover the massive bald spot on top of his head. You've seen the pictures, right? So he dropped over two grand down on a brand new toupee. To go with his fresh new look, he needed a new bachelor pad to take the women back to. The small, cramped RV just wasn't doing it for him anymore. So he bought himself a mobile home and hauled it to the back of the farm, tucked away far from prying eyes. Willie had bought the fancy new toupee and the new trailer, but it wasn't long before the toupee was covered in grease and filthy because it never occurred to him to wash it, and the new trailer was trashed just like the farmhouse and the RVs. You can dress up a hog, but at the end of the day, it's gonna waller in its own shit. As time went on and word spread about Piggy's Palace, the community was divided on how they felt about the place. A few local politicians and police officers frequented the palace and insisted it was safe. As a matter of fact, a Little League kids team actually held an event there. It kind of reminds me of that one scene in Sweet Home Alabama. You know, when Melanie runs into her high school friend and the local bar, and she says to her, Look at you. You have a baby in a bar. That's kind of what was going on here. Although they weren't babies, they were little leaguers, but they most definitely were running around in a bar. But children, politicians, and policemen weren't the only ones hanging around the palace. Other members of the community complained about loud music, drugs, prostitution, and criminals running buck wild all over the place. And what did Dave Picton have to say? He argued that his establishment was safe, saying, quote, I use Tony of White Knight Security for all my parties. He's an angel. If I have angels at my parties, I ask them not to wear their colors. I ask them not to scare people. Tony is the best. He's my bouncer, my doorman. All the parked cars are watched. My parties are safe. I'm sure you figured out by now, Tony wasn't a winged angel dressed all in white and sent down from the heavens above, but instead he was a criminal who was affiliated with the Hells Angels Biker Club. And as I've said before, Dave Picton had a weird obsession with them. But exactly who was this Tony Dave had put in charge of security? Let's head straight on down that rabbit trail. Because y'all aren't going to believe this shit. Tony was actually Anthony Terazaki, reportedly a Hell's Angel who happened to operate a major crack cocaine operation in the downtown east side of Vancouver. He had a rap sheet with all kinds of charges, and most people were terrified of him. But it's his 2006 conviction on 11 assault-related charges and how they came about, that really caught my attention. 
According to the Globe and Mail, it all started when Tony's wife had turned over some videotapes to police after he was arrested on organized crime and trafficking charges. When investigators sat down and hit the play button, they were shocked. The tapes contained hours of footage of Terazaki busting in hotel rooms on the downtown east side and yelling and screaming at the drug-addicted tenants telling them to get their lives together and read their Bibles. If they didn't comply with Tony and stop using drugs, he'd return and beat the ever-living shit out of them, all while screaming, praise the Lord. Because let me tell you, nothing says love thy neighbor quite like a swift punch in the face. Am I right? Obviously, Tony was charged with multiple assaults, pled not guilty, and in 2006, the case went to trial. The prosecution kind of had things pretty well buttoned up, since this fool happened to record himself assaulting multiple people. They claimed Tony harassed some of the victims because they actually owed him money for drugs. The defense had their work cut out for them, so they had to get a little creative. And boy, did they ever. The defense claimed that Tony was playing a role of, quote, a larger-than-life character who was in charge of security at various hotels. And all of the footage of his crimes were actually staged videos because he was making a docu-series he planned to call, wait for it, Bible Thumpers. The inspiration for Bible Thumpers had come to him while he was watching Johnny Knoxville in Jackass the movie. The jury broke out their popcorn and junior mints, or at least they should have, as the defense played clips of the movie Reservoir Dogs, a documentary about the movie Apocalypse Now, and of course the movie Jackass. Why, you ask? They were trying to provide context to help the jury distinguish between real and fictional violence. And yes, there are a million and one other ways to do that, should you find it necessary, but watching Jackass is the route they chose. They went on to argue that the injuries sustained by the victims on the films were fake and that at the time Tony filmed the videos, he was battling demons of his own, including drug addiction. Hmm, maybe old Tony should have practiced a little more of what he preached. Surprise, surprise, the jury didn't buy the bullshit, and Tony was convicted. What does this have to do with Willie Picton and Piggy's Palace? Absolutely nothing other than the fact that this guy ran security at the palace for a time. But there was no way I could know this information and not share it with you. As Piggy's Palace Good Time Society grew in popularity, once again, women from the downtown east side of Vancouver continued to vanish. According to the Globe and Mail on Saturday, April 6, 1996, 36-year-old Fran Young threw on her coat and headed out the door for an evening walk. She told her boyfriend that she'd be right back. She didn't come home that night or the next. 
on Monday morning, her boyfriend contacted her family. Her mom knew immediately something was wrong, so she headed straight to the Vancouver police to report her daughter missing. Initially, VPD didn't take the missing persons report seriously. They brought up her history of depression and the fact that she used heroin and told her mom she'll turn up, no need to worry. But she didn't. So her mom and siblings tried desperately to gain public attention. They issued a news release, posted flyers on telephone poles in her neighborhood and all over the low track. But again, they heard nothing. They never gave up. Fran's mother, Pat Cowan, fought tirelessly to find her daughter. She reached out to politicians, garnered support with petitions, launched a website and a Facebook page devoted to finding her daughter. She named it Find Fran. She never gave up hope. Pat Cowan made a wish every single night for the rest of her life. Her wish was simple. The profile photo on the Find Fran Facebook page is a picture of a small wooden dream box open to show a slip of paper inscribed with Pat's wish. It simply says, Fran found. The caption reads, Every night at bedtime, the dream box is held, and I think about my dream of finding my daughter. Legend has it, if done faithfully, my dream will come true. Tragically, Pat's dream didn't come true, at least not in this life. She passed away on October 5th, 2010, never knowing what happened to Fran. Her obituary on Legacy.com reads in part, Pat can finally be at peace from her relentless search for her eldest daughter, Frances Young, that went missing in the spring of 1996. Frances Young was last seen on the west side of Vancouver wearing a long black leather coat green sweater, and blue jeans. She's 5 foot 4, 110 pounds, with long, curly auburn hair and blue eyes. The next woman to vanish was 20-year-old Tanya Marlowe Holik. In October of 1996, Tanya was living in Vancouver with her mother, Dixie. She had moved back in with her so that she could help her take care of her young son. Her relationship with the baby's father, Gary, was rocky to say the least. But on October 29, 1996, Gary had come to Tanya's to pick up his son and take him for visitation. Tanya asked him if he could keep the baby for three days instead of his usual two because she wanted to attend a Halloween party. Gary agreed. Tanya Holik headed out on Halloween and everything seemed fine. That was until the next day on November 1st, 1996, when she didn't return home. Dixie was convinced that something awful had happened to her daughter, so she dialed up the Vancouver police to file a missing persons report. The Vancouver police, however, were certain that Tanya wasn't missing or in any danger, and she was just out. Dixie recalled the exchange in an interview that aired on CNN. VPD told her, 
Your daughter is just out having fun. Don't bother us. Don't waste our time. And then they hung up on me. I just stood there with the phone in my hand for 10 minutes, just looking at it. For two days, Dixie kept on pressing the missing persons unit at VPD until they finally agreed to let her file a missing persons report. Tanya Holik was never seen alive again, and the disappearances didn't stop there. According to the Doe Network, 21-year-old Olivia Williams was last seen in Vancouver on December 6, 1996. She wasn't reported missing, however, until July of 97. Not much is known about Olivia or the circumstances surrounding her disappearance. But here's what we do know. Olivia had given birth to a child just before she went missing. She's a native woman, approximately 5 foot 4, 125 pounds, with long black hair and brown eyes. Olivia Gail Williams remains missing to this day. And there was another woman in 1996 who came dangerously close to joining the growing list of the missing women. Her name is Tracy Bouillon. In 1996, Tracy was living at the Astoria Hotel and had been for quite some time. She was a sex worker and pretty familiar with Willie Pickton. She had seen him around very frequently, riding up and down the side streets in his truck, looking to pick up a woman. As it turned out, pretty much all of the women working the downtown east side knew Willie, and they knew he was there looking for sex. Willie didn't drink, and he didn't use drugs. Why else would he be cruising that area? Tracy was a mother of five, and she and her husband both struggled with addiction. She wanted to go back to her home in Victoria and raise her kids. But her addiction kept her there in that small hotel, selling her body to feed her habit. Tracy pretty much had a regular set of customers, so she was a bit surprised the night Willie Pickton stopped his truck and called her over. He told her he wanted a blowjob, and she told him it would be $40. Willie agreed, and she hopped in his truck. Tracy recalled to Stevie Cameron in On the Farm that she wanted to hop right back out, stating it smelled terrible. It smelled of animals, like barn animals. And then he took me out to his trailer, which was fucking disgusting. As soon as you got into the kitchen, you couldn't go any farther. There were clothes everywhere. The kitchen had a big counter with a sink and a little propane heater. The parking lot was built at the side of the trailer. As you came in, the kitchen was right there, and on the left was the rest of the building. What I could see was just the kitchen. I couldn't go any further. He said, let's go in here, but I couldn't get past all the mess. So we did our business. And then I was getting dressed. I seen him talking. He says he can't find his wallet. He pulls out this knife. He says I've got his wallet. I pushed him back. He cuts two buttons off my shirt. I got out of the trailer. I just walked out and he finally comes out and gives me back my person wallet. 
Willie then drove Tracy back to the downtown east side. He blabbered the whole way about how he liked helping working girls out, specifically helping them kick their drug habit. But they only had one chance with him. According to Tracy, Willie said, If they go back to dope, well then they don't deserve to live. They're useless. They're better off dead. Tracy went on to say, Girls were into speedballs. Girls like Mona Wilson, who later fell victim to Willie, was in jail for a little while and was in bad shape. He was picking on the worst ones. He would come and say he would help the girls, especially the ones in withdrawal. He would talk to the girls downtown. He tried to make friends with them and they would trust him. He would promise to help you kick the dope. But once a girl tries to quit and doesn't succeed, they're useless. When they go back to dope, he'd say, you're useless, just fucking bitches. Willie had assumed he was safe to say all this to Tracy, because since she didn't ask him for drugs, he didn't think she did them. But Tracy did struggle with addiction, although she had a strict rule to never use when she was with a date. That rule likely saved Tracy Bouillon that night. Tracy never reported being threatened with a knife to police. However, she did tell the ladies at Wish, which is a drop-in center that cares for the sex trade workers in the downtown east side, and they have for almost 40 years. The women at Wish added Willie Picton to their bad date list. And the disappearances started happening more and more frequently. But that will have to wait until next week because unfortunately, we're out of time. Join me next Thursday for part six of the Pig Farmer series. Believe me, you don't want to miss it. I'll be sure and link Stevie Cameron's book, on the farm, Robert William Picton and the tragic story of Vancouver's missing women in the show notes. If you want to learn more about Wish and what they're doing to serve the women of Vancouver, you can find them at wish-vancouver.net. And if you have any information about any of the cases featured in this series, please call Crime Stoppers Canada at 1-800-222-8477. Or you can submit a tip online at canadiancrimestoppers.org. You can remain anonymous. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I can't wait for next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.